All right, let me ask you a question. You ever been aggravated? You ever been aggravated more than once? Now, I'm going to ask this question. Don't give a response. Do you stay aggravated? Mm, don't say anything, just in case. No, don't elbow your spouse or anything else. Aggravation. We all get aggravated from time to time. So I did a little look online uh, this week, and these are uh, some of the things that were listed when people were surveyed. What is it in life that aggravates you? Here's, a, here's just a few things. Uh, when people cut me off in traffic at the last minute to make a turn, it's a little aggravating. By the way, I will just say I relate to several of these. I did not put any of my personal ones in here. So if you're trying to figure out which one really irks the pastor, you won't know because I didn't put a personal one, but I do agree with some of these. When you become the unintentional toilet roll replacer in the house, a little aggravation from time to time. When someone wears earphones while they're carrying on a face-to-face -face conversation with you, a little aggravating. Uh, when people just stand silently behind you while you're doing something. When people throw away stuff that's yours without asking. How about when you drop your phone between the car seat and the console? Mm. When someone is using their phone while you're having a conversation with them. Yeah, that's pretty aggravating, isn't it? When someone with you at a restaurant begins their order with, mm, can I get couple of you get that one. Yes, you can get. They're there to serve you. When someone fails to hold the door for you as you enter behind them. When someone takes up two parking spaces. Mm. Man, it's getting quiet in here. You guys all, are you guys all of a sudden holier than thou? When someone continues to sniff loudly rather than blowing their nose. When someone is driving slowly in front of you because they are texting. Mm. Let's just bow for a moment of prayer right now. So, believe it or not, we're going to talk about aggravation this morning. And we're actually, the title of the teaching is An Aggravated Jesus. I wrestled with that at first because we know Jesus is holy. We know he's the Son of God. We know he is the risen king. He is the lamb of God. He is God in flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. To talk about an aggravated Jesus, but I, but I, I feel okay with it. I've, I've come to terms with it because we're going we're gonna to see this morning in these verses of Mark chapter 8, the aggravation, the frustration that Jesus feels towards some very certain things and attitudes that are happening in, in the life around the disciples and around God's people. We do know this, that uh, Jesus became aggravated with the money changers at the entryway to the temple to the point that uh, he flipped over their tables and scattered all their wares and their goods and their coins everywhere. Now, we know this. He, he was without sin. We know he never sinned, so his anger was not sin. His anger was, was pointed at something that was a great injustice to the kingdom of God. These money changers were putting an obstacle in the way of people worshiping Jehovah God. And to Jesus, that was unacceptable. We know that in Mark chapter 3, we read it some weeks back as we were there studying, that uh, he was somewhat frustrated with the Pharisees. They were asking him a bunch of questions, and he re refused to answer them because they wouldn't answer his questions. 
Now, it's not like he's like, oh, well, you did this, you did it. It's not that. What he's, what he's frustrated with is that, that they wouldn't give the answers they, they knew were right about who he was. But he shows his frustration then, and he says, okay, if you're not going to answer my questions, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. He knew the conversation could go no further. Nothing else was going to transpire of any kingdom value. So Jesus was aggravated at things that, were, that mattered most to the kingdom. Now for us, we've all acknowledged we deal with some aggravation. Here's our downfall. We rarely get aggravated with things that are of the kingdom of God matters. We usually get aggravated about things that matter to our kingdom, right? For some reason, I just feel like every road in Texas has been paved for me. I don't know. Well, I know where that comes from. <laughs> it's called pride. And I feel like everybody should drive the way I think they should drive on these roads that belong to me. That space was my space that you just, anyway, let me back off. So this morning, we're going to see the aggravation of Jesus when it comes to hypocrisy, worldliness, and unbelief. Now, as we read these verses in Mark chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse number 11. We're going to read through verse 21. And I want you to, to, to watch closely and see if you don't pick up on the frustration that Jesus has in this moment. So we pick up in verse 11, and it says, The Pharisees came, again, they, we have found them for the last three chapters of Mark, just, just hounding Jesus. The Pharisees came and they began to argue with him. See, that's all they wanted. They just wanted to argue. Religious people just want to argue. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Watch this. He sighed deeply in his spirit. That's the first sign I get that Jesus is a little frustrated with these conversations he has to continue having with these guys who are never going to change their minds anyway. He sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. Now, the disciples are in the boat with him. We pick up in verse 14. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them. Pause for a moment. If you were with us last Sunday, we began chapter 8, and we saw that Jesus fed 4,000 people. Again, it was another miraculous feeding. It was different than the 5,000. We showed you how it was different. But he took seven loaves of bread, right? And he fed 4,000, and a few fish, and he fed 4,000 people. It says they collected seven basketfuls of bread left over. Now, we discovered that word for basket means the type of basket that's big enough for a human person to sit down inside of because it's the same word used of the basket in Acts where, uh, where Paul was being let down over the wall of Damascus to be led to safety because the people were wanting to arrest him. So they put him in a basket, lowered it by rope down the other side. That's the same word. So it was big enough for the apostle Paul to fit in. So these were big baskets, seven of them left over. And all of a sudden, these guys only show up in the boat with one loaf of bread. They have forgotten the blessings of the baskets. That's going to lead now to some interesting conversation with Jesus and even a point of frustration we're going to find on the part of Jesus with them. They have, they have forgotten their blessing. And what really frustrates is they will show in a moment they have forgotten the one who blessed them. Verse 15. 
And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So he's talking spiritual. They're like, oh, man, he's talking bread. He's really hacked off at us now, isn't he? It's not what he was going after at all, but that's where they went. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Watch these questions. Think about, think about a time maybe you were, anybody, when you talked about aggravation, anybody ever been aggravated with your children? See if this doesn't identify. When you were, anytime you were aggravated with your kids, it usually, it usually involved a lot of questions on your part. That's where aggravation comes, comes in the form of questions. How long how many more weeks are you going to wear that pair of socks laying on your bedroom floor? <laughs> How many more cases of Twinkies are you going to leave laying around this room? When are you going to clean this pigsty up? See? Questions. Watch these questions that Jesus lays out. And this is where I realized this week he's got some frustration going toward a few things here. Now, it's important that we understand what they are. So aware of this, said, then why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? There's one. Don't you understand what I've been doing? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? See, they're still thinking bread, and he's thinking spiritual bread. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you take up? They said 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, one more question. Do you not yet understand? So we have this deep sigh of Jesus when the Pharisees come one more time to argue with him. And then we have these questions. Jesus, so why, why when we're aggravated or frustrated, is it in the form of questions that we express that? Probably because we just can't believe they don't understand. <laughs> when, you got, when you're frustrated with your kids and that pair of socks that's standing up now on their own in the corner, it's because you just can't believe that they don't get that those socks stink. Don't they see these things need to be washed? So it comes in these questions, and so, so Jesus expresses a real sense of, of aggravation or frustration here this morning, but what's important is that we understand what he's frustrated about, because I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a frustration to Jesus. Let me put it this way. I don't want to be any more of a frustration to Jesus than I probably already am, because I'm probably too much of that on my own already anyway. So what is it that we discovered this morning frustrates him? As before I get into those three truths right there, let me explain this idea of leaven. He said to beware, be watchful and be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. We'll talk about both the Pharisees and Herod and what his frustrations there were in just a moment. But let's understand what he means when he talks about leaven. So in the Old Testament, leaven uh, is used multitudes of times concerning uh, evil. 
as an analogy, as a tangible physical illustration. There's nothing evil about leaven. If you like fluffy bread, you want to put some leaven in the dough so that you have bread that rises. But it was an illustration or a picture of what evil does. So you would take and you're, you're, you're kneading your dough and you're getting ready to make some bread and you, you, want it to be, you want it to rise and you want it to be fluffy. Then you would take a little bit of yeast and it doesn't take much. And the compound mixture of the yeast is made up of such a nature that when you put it in the dough and you start mixing it up, it spreads. And when it spreads, its, it's main objective is to ferment the sugar that's inside the dough which then makes it all fluffy. Now you get fluffy bread. If you studied in the Old Testament the, the, the Feast of Passover, where once a year Israel would take the evening and the next day and they would celebrate and remember what, what God had done. Actually, it was a week-long ceremony. They would, they would remember how God led Israel out of Egypt that night when the death angel passed over. And all of the children of Israel that had blood painted on the doorposts were spared. So they're remembering that event. They call it Passover. And one of the things they were to do was to remove all of the leaven out of their homes. They were not to have any leaven. And they were to bake their bread for that occasion without any leaven in it. The only reason being, there's not anything evil with the leaven itself, is that God was teaching them, rid yourself. Rid yourself of the influence of evil. So why does leaven make such a, a perfect picture of evil? Well, it's a small part, goes a long way. It doesn't take much sin to make us a sinner. And it spreads quietly. You don't see it. You're just kneading the dough and, and fluffing it and all that kind of stuff and tossing it around and twirling it and all that. And, and, and you don't see its effect until it's already infiltrated all of the dough. And you see its effect by the rising of that, that dough. Its influence is silent and it's unseen. They would even be able to take a small portion of that leaven, having make a cake over here or making a, a loaf of bread over here and take it and put it into another one and start another loaf of bread that's now going to rise because of the, the leaven that's in it. And so just this picture of, of the influence of evil in our lives and in our culture and how subtle the influence can be that we don't even know we're being influenced until perhaps it's a little too late and sin has started to rise to the surface of our life. And so Jesus says, look, be aware of the evil and the wicked influence of the Pharisees, whoa, that's religious people, and Herod. He's an ungodly. We're going to talk about him in a while. He's ungodly. So what are the three things out of this paragraph of Scripture today that we find Jesus frustrated with? So for the purpose that we can guard ourselves from it. The first one is this, hypocrisy. Everybody say hypocrisy. I call it empty worship. It's what Jesus is addressing here with the, with the Pharisees. Hypocrisy. You see, the Pharisees want Jesus to give them a sign. Now, he's done all of these miracles. They've seen him heal blind eyes already in the Gospel of Mark. They've seen him heal lame people. They've seen him heal lepers. They've seen him do all kinds of things. But they've come to him and they say, give us a sign so that we will know who you are. Well, he just fed 
4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and, and a couple of few fish. They've got this, this hardened heart. You see, they're religious people. They can quote a whole bunch of the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what they're taught as children, and they learn that. And they teach those things. They are religious enough that they know what the prophet said about the coming Messiah, and the Messiah is standing in front of them, and they can't see him. Remember, Jesus said, do you have ears but can't hear? Do you have eyes but can't see? They were so full of religion, their own form of godliness, that they couldn't see God right there in front of them. And yet they should have known. If anybody should have known who the Messiah was, the Pharisees should have been declaring, this is the one we've read about. This is the one we've told you about in Jeremiah. This is the one we've told you about from the prophet Isaiah. And yet they, they don't even recognize him. So they're asking for a sign. Let me, let me show you what the danger here is. So this word sign that is used here in, in, in the New Testament, in its original Greek, it means an authorization of authority. So what they're asking Jesus to do is speak something or do something that shows he has the authority of heaven to forgive sin and to claim that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Give us something that authorizes you to do that. Now, what's the difference between a sign and a miracle? A sign is a manifestation of something supernatural. The difference between a sign and a miracle in this situation is a miracle is a divine manifestation that meets a need and it's done in a very sovereign, supernatural way by only God who can do that. And it's okay to ask for a miracle. What was not okay about asking for a sign was their unbelief. See, they're asking for a sign that says, show us something that says you're authorized to say what you say and do what you do. What is at the core of that? Unbelief. They don't believe Jesus and they don't believe the scriptures that point to Jesus from the Old Testament. Why is it okay to ask for a miracle? Because that's everything about belief. <laughs> I'm not asking anybody for the miracle. I'm asking Jesus for the miracle because I know Jesus is the one that can provide the miracle. I absolutely believe he can provide the miracle. That's belief. Asking for a sign is unbelief. Asking that he would demonstrate his authority so they would believe on him. You know, they went all the way to the cross with that concept. He was mocked at the cross and people were hollering out, if you're truly who you say you are, come down off of that cross and save yourself. Two things, they were never going to believe if he came off the cross. He's just spent three and a half years doing stuff that John, the, the writer of the gospel, says the whole books of the world couldn't contain everything Jesus did in those years. They're not going to change their minds on that day. And two, if he comes off the cross, you and I have no reason to be here today. We could be out playing golf, fishing, camping. We could be doing any number of a thing today. If Jesus came down off the cross, we would be doing it destined for an eternity in hell, separated from our God, Father, Creator. But he had to stay on the cross. That he could provide forgiveness for our sin. So they don't want to sign. What they're wanting to do is sentence Jesus. They want to catch him saying something that doesn't come true or is contradictory to Old Testament, and then they've got him. They were trying to trick him. They were trying to set a trap. 
The leaven of the Pharisees is this false hypocritical worship. You see, they considered themselves to be the most holy of the holy people of God's people. But yet they were so far, so far in their hearts from the God that they, they chose to say they worshiped. In Matthew verse 15, Jesus would, would say this, These people honor me with their lips. Now he's quoting from actually the prophet Isaiah, some, some almost 800 years earlier, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel then, and Jesus saying it now. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. With their hearts far from him, he says, their worship is vain. I, I, I can't receive their worship. It's not even really worship. And their teachings are merely human rules. Now for us, it's easy to go through outward demonstrations. It is really easy, particularly if you've uh, been associated with with church or, or even Christ for any length of time, it's, it's easy to know how to act, to look spiritual. It's easy to know how to do certain things in a charismatic worship service for the purpose of appearing spiritual, which is what the religious people were about. But it's a whole other thing to do those things in worship that are an expression flowing from a heart that is full of Jesus. And so full of Jesus, it overflows to this demonstration of my faith in him. Remember, Jesus would rebuke these religious leaders, these Pharisees, for praying loud prayers. There's not anything wrong with praying in public. Not anything wrong with praying out loud. In fact, I would just say, you need to pray out loud more. There's not anything wrong with that. What they were doing, they were doing it to show people how spiritual they were. Now, here's a caution. We may be afraid to give too much of a demonstration of our overflowing heart of worship to God, or we may be afraid to pray out loud in public because we're afraid somebody will take it the wrong way. So sometimes we take it to the other extreme. Sometimes it's, hey, look at me, I'm, I'm Carl Charismatic. And then other times it's, I'm, I'm Debbie Downer. I'm just me, and I'm not going to pray out loud because I don't want anybody to think I'm... And so we go to the other extreme, and we miss the joy of a full-on outflow of worship to Jesus because we're worried people will think we're trying to be spiritual. Can I just tell you this? this morning? Forget what people think. Forget what people think. When you're worshiping, why are you worried about somebody else? If you're worried about somebody else, you're not truly worshiping because your focus is on him. Your heart and your eyes are set on him when you're worshiping. So that was free, by the way. That wasn't part of the admission. Worship is a heart issue. It flows from our heart. And then Jesus would then in John 4 say this, talking to a woman who says, by the way, you guys, she's a Samaritan woman, a Gentile, by the way, your people say you should worship on this mountain, and my people say we should worship here. And Jesus says, well, I'll just solve this now. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will not worship on this mountain or any other mountain. They will worship me, or they will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So what does Jesus identify as a true worship? If we're talking about hypocrisy and false, empty worship, what is it that's true worship? What is it that 
doesn't frustrate Jesus, but actually brings pleasure and joy and delight to him and the Father in our worship. And it is this, worshiping in spirit and in truth. Now, I know you're probably like, okay, so what does that mean? Because I don't fully understand it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you what I've come to, to know for me personally and see if it will help a little bit. So he says, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. So spirit, we are born again. The only reason we want to worship is because we've been born again. And to be born again means the spirit of Jesus came down and now lives inside of me. He says, you will be born of the spirit, not of flesh, but you will be born again when the spirit comes into you. So I want to worship because the spirit has come alive inside me. So what is spirit worship? Spirit worship is allowing the spirit of Christ inside of me to flow out of me with expressions of worth and value and affection and praise and thanksgiving to Jesus. One of the things Paul teaches in the New Testament about the spirit is that he brings revelation to us. He says, he says the spirit reveals the things of God to us. When you, perhaps before you came to know Jesus, you were in a place like I was, and you, you had Bibles, and you went to church, and you read the Bible, and it made no sense to you. Boom. I give my heart in full surrender to Jesus on November 13th, 1981, and I sit down the next day to read from the Gospel of John, because they said, go to the Gospel of John and start reading. I start reading John chapter 1, and boom, the lights came on. Why? Because the night before, I got filled with the very author of the book. And now it makes all the sense, or it made all the sense in the world. Do I understand everything? Absolutely not. I'm a student, and I, and I study, and I, and I have to continue, as you do, digging into it and, and learning and learning. But the Spirit, so to say worship in Spirit, is to, to worship out of revelation of who Jesus is. To know that he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. To recognize our world is in a chaotic state, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he calmed storms, walked on seas, parted waters, he fed the hungry, he clothed the naked. He, he just did everything in supernatural fashion. He's the same yesterday, he's the same today as he was yesterday. And to know that he is worthy to be worshipped in spite of all the craziness in my world around me. And how do I know I can trust him? Because the Spirit has revealed to me Jesus will take care of me. Because he has to this point. So it's worshiping out of a, out of a revelation. So we're going we're gonna to come back in a few moments at the close of this teaching. And we're, gonna, we're just going to worship some more. We used to do it this way a few years back where we would uh, open with some songs and get our hearts in a right motion, get our hearts in an atmosphere right, and, and then move into the teaching and then into worship. So we're just going to do some extra worship uh, at the close of the message this morning. And, and, and my, my desire is, and always has been, but, but even so more now, is that, that we would just respond to the Lord and what the Spirit is doing in the time. And that my worship, so we're going to, we're going to sing a couple of songs that are, and I, I don't want, I, I hate to say sing because then that just sounds so rote, like it's just, okay, it's just mechanical. But the songs are tools to help us express what's down here. That's what they are, they're tools. So we're going to sing a song, we're going to do communion together, and then we're going to do a song 
called Amazing Grace. Now, it's the newer version of, and we've done it many, many times here. But we're going to do Amazing Grace. So what happens in that moment? If I'm worshiping in spirit, I'm, I'm worshiping out of an understanding of the grace he's given me. How great his grace is to me that he would go to the cross and die for my sins. That he would, he would, he would allow his blood to pour out so that my sins could be covered and washed and forgiven. It's, like, it's that kind of thing. I'm just trying to help you understand and, and see. And, 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 and then we're going to sing a song called Jireh. That one of the names God gave himself in the Old Testament is Jehovah Jireh. And it means the God who provides. And out of worshiping his spirit, I'm, I'm reflecting. I'm reflecting in that moment of, of how he's provided for me. How he is able. His word says he, he has created all things. All things have been created by him and for him. And he's, he's worthy to be worshipped as that provider. But then Jesus says, not only do we worship in spirit, reflecting on what we know about Jesus, but then we worship in truth. We worship what we know about Jesus from his word. But I think that idea of worshiping from truth also plays in a part of I'm worshiping Jehovah Jireh as I know him to be my provider personally. That in that moment of worship, I'm reflecting on how he's been so gracious to me, how he's provided. You know, I thanked him this morning in my personal quiet time. Uh, in, my, in that time, I just, one of, my, one of my thanks was, Lord, I thank you that you have, have blessed me and you have blessed my family. You have blessed us with health. You have blessed us, I said it this way, spirit, soul, and body. And when I said body, I realized, man, he, is, he has been over us. Even in sickness, he's made his presence known to us and brought us grace. And so to worship in truth is then to worship out of my experience with him. That he's my provider, I know that, he provides all things, but for me personally, Lord, I worship you this morning because I realize you have provided health. You have provided love for me. You have provided, and then it becomes just you're caught up. You're not worried about what anybody else thinks. And so it may just be that you're so caught up that all of a sudden you just find yourself lifting your hands or you may find yourself swaying. You might even find yourself dancing. And you know what? That's okay. If you want to dance, keep it spiritual. But go for it. Whatever the expression is. And, and I would just say this, that nobody's going to judge you for how you're going to worship. Nobody's going to judge you for how you're going to worship the Lord. So be free. If you were ever going to be free to worship, it's either going to be in your living room or here. Okay? I guarantee you, you will have more liberty here than you will in the aisles at Walmart. Now you can and you should, but I bet you don't. Worship in spirit and in truth. Second one. Okay, that one I will tell you was longer than the other two, probably. I'm not going to box myself in here. Second one, the leaven of Herod. What is that? That's hedonism. Everybody say hedonism. Okay, I chose that word because it starts with an H, but it means worldliness. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of Herod. He says two things back to back. He says, watch out and beware. To watch out means to think seriously about the influence 
of Herod or the Pharisees, which would be hypocrisy or worldliness. Think seriously about the influence of it and know that it's around you. But then he says, not only watch out, but beware. Beware means now be cautious how you allow things to influence you. Know that the influence is there. Watch out and know that there's, there's the subtleness of this leaven of worldliness, ungodliness around you. And then beware, make intentional decisions and choices to not let it influence and spread through you and into you. So what is the leaven of Herod? To understand that, you've got to understand Herod. Now, let's, let's be honest. There's more than one Herod mentioned in the Gospels. Beginning in Matthew 2, we read about Herod, who is Herod the Great, all the way through near the end of the book of Acts, we're hearing about Herod. It's not the same Herod. They are all of the same family. But they're not the same Herod. There's about four different ones. But we're going to talk about Herod the Great because he kind of gets the ball rolling in this direction. He is the Herod in Matthew chapter 2 when uh, the, the Magi go to, to, to Herod and they say, hey, we, where's this king of the Jews born? And all of a sudden Herod's ears perk up because you see, he's, he's king of the Jews. Rome has designated him to be the king of the Jews. He works for them as king of the Jews. So he's kind of in their pocket. But he hears this king of the Jews and it perks him up. Well, he lives with this incredible insecurity about everything. So what does he do? He's the king, Herod, who has all the baby boys under the, year, under the age of two years old killed, hoping he's eliminated this new king of the Jews. That's this guy that Jesus is speaking of. He became king over Israel by the Roman government around 36 B.C., and all the way up till the first couple of years of Christ's life here. He had, uh, he had his mother-in-law killed. Enough said. With these self-esteem issues, he had two of his own sons killed. Had one of his ten wives killed. Killed 43 or 46 of the 46 members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the religious uh, council, legal council of the Jews. He had 46 of them killed because they didn't agree with him. He's not the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded, but it was one of his family Herods that did for preaching sin. He possessed uncontrolled ambitions and lust. What he wanted, he wanted, and he would do anything to get it. He lived a life of debauchery. He lived a, a hedonistic lifestyle. So let me define the word hedonism for you. It's the purest, it's the pursuit, I'm sorry, because there's nothing pure about it. It's the pursuit of pleasure and sensual self-indulgence. So humanism is a form of hedonism. Humanism says I, it's about me. And we're all our own God and we make our own rules. That's hedonism. Living for the pleasures of this world above anything else. If it feels good, do it. That's, a, that's, that's the, the underlying philosophy of hedonism. So we're talking about worldliness. We're talking about attitude that is, that is in opposition to God's attitude of holiness. 
and expectation of holiness. So we think, what does it look like? Here, Paul gives us just a simple, and I don't have time to go deep into this, but, but Paul gives us these words in Galatians chapter 5. He says, now the works of the flesh. Now, stop there for a moment. When the scriptures talk about flesh nature, not simply talking about your body, but talking about the sin nature, talking about works of the flesh as opposed to works of the spirit. So in the Paul talks a lot about this, this dichotomy between two spirits at work in the world and two spirits at work against you. The spirit of Christ in the spirit of the flesh, the law of the flesh, the works of flesh. So the works of flesh in the Bible or New Testament are talking about those things that are opposed to the holiness of God. So Paul says this, now these are the works of the flesh. These are just some of the demonstrations. Sexual immorality, and we could go on forever of what that includes. Sexual immorality, impurity is a work of the flesh, impure minds, impure thoughts, sensuality, living for the sensual things of life that make you feel good even though they're sin. Idolatry, setting things up in the place of God, putting them first in our life. Sorcery, witchcraft, demons, darkness, and all of that stuff. Enmity, fighting, anger, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, revelries, rivalry, revelries, rivalries, I don't know what that is, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and all these things. He says, Paul says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't. You can't inherit the kingdom because in the kingdom, those things don't exist. And if that's your existence, when you get there, you can't get in. <laughs> you just can't do it. it. So Paul says we deal with it now. And we deal with it through Christ. Jesus despises the activity of the flesh nature because he understands that it robs us of the fullness of life that he died and rose from the dead to give to us. Remember, he said, you will have life and you will have it abundant. My flesh nature, every blessing I'm missing out on is because of my flesh nature and my response out of my flesh. And I can say something, I can think something, I can do something, and all of a sudden the Spirit quickens me and says, dude, that was way too much of you and not enough of me. The flesh nature robs us of the abundance of life Jesus has for us. And from there in Galatians 5, Paul would then, he explains what the works of flesh look like. And he says, but the, the works of the Spirit are this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then he says in verse 24 of Galatians 5, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That's our responsibility. Jesus died on the cross and gave his life's blood for the payment of my sin so that I could be forgiven and cleansed of my sin. Now, I have a responsibility. Paul would tell us in another place, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Hear me. He does not say work for your salvation. Jesus paid it all. You cannot work for your salvation like the Pharisees thought. What he is saying is, after you have received this gift of the grace of forgiveness and cleansing of sin, keep it clean. Keep it clean, Christian. 
keep it clean. They have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires, meaning we are dying to that old flesh nature. So when, when you came to faith in Christ, when I came to faith in Christ, I was 21 years old. I had 21 years of, of just doing my thing. And I was in a lot of trouble. In fact, I, I left the West Coast to come to Texas because I was in a lot of trouble on the West Coast. And I decided when I got here, I probably needed to get saved so that trouble didn't follow me here. That's not all the reason, but that's kind of how it all came together. And when I got saved at the age of 21, I had 21 years of me, 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 me. You know the old Toby Keith song, let's talk about me. I want to talk about I, I want to talk about me, oh my, or whatever. That's the old flesh nature. It's all about me. But then I was born again. And I know that night Jesus came into my heart. I've told you this before. It, it felt like I could just breathe. Because there had been this, such this heaviness over me for so many years of guilt and the shame of my sin. And it was just like this thing lifted. It's like what the Bible says, Jesus took my sin from me. And so I was born again, but I wasn't perfect. Oh, by the way, I'm still not. But I'm a lot different today than I was, whatever that was, 41 years ago. And what I learned and what I was taught by some very dear spirit-filled friends was that I was going to have to, I was going to have to starve my old sin nature. And I was going to have to get into the Word, and I was going to have to get into prayer, and I was going to have to get into worship, and I was going to have to feed this spirit nature of Jesus that was now living in me. Because I've got 21 years of me, 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 and now it's to be the next years through eternity, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But me doesn't always want Jesus. And Jesus always wants all of me. And so it's a matter of taking those things. When I, when I find myself, man, I've, I've had a, I'll just be honest with you, I've, I've noticed over the last few months I've had a, a real critical spirit in, in, in a lot of ways. And at first I was thinking, well, that's frustration because these people just need to get it together. I'm not talking about you, but just people are in general. And then I realized after a few months of that silliness that that was all on me. The old Muppet... Uh, quote that I love out of the first Muppet movie was people's is people and people are just going to be people the critical nature I had was my flesh nature thinking they owed me something they needed to get it right and get off my last nerve now what I needed to do was kill that last nerve and go on so we're called to put to death the old sin nature Paul tells us in Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desire. So how do you do that? Here's real quick application. Get your mind filled with the word of God. You know what I started doing to combat? Well, I've always, you guys have always known for, for a number of years now, I've always uh, used a, a study guide or a prayer guide or a reading guide to read through the Bible each year. But I began the second one, filling my heart with worship. I began listening more to worship instead of radio. And I just thought, you know what, part of this has got to be the, the absolute renewing of my mind. Getting my heart resaturated once again. You still love me? You still let me be your pastor next Sunday? I'll try not to be critical this week. 
filling my heart with worship. Get your attitude filled with the ways of God. Just start thinking about what God wants over what I want. And then as well, get your passions aligned with the will of God. In other words, bring everything back out of your flesh and, 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 and make it about God. First and foremost, seek first his kingdom. Third and last frustration that we see is the hard-heartedness of the disciples. Verse 17, he says, And aware of this, he said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? So Jesus is expressing some frustration. It's not the first time he's been frustrated with the, the unbelief of the disciples. You see, they're thinking physical bread. They're missing the whole spiritual point. They're missing the whole spiritual part of the 5,000 feeding and the 4,000 feeding. Their hearts have become hardened. He reviews all of these things with them, and then he closes it with, do you not understand? You see, they're with Jesus now for well over a year and a half, probably more like two years now at this point in time, and they still don't seem to get what all this is. They see the miracles, and they rejoice in that moment, and they reap the benefit of the loaves and the fishes and all this, but, but it goes no further. They have this lack of seeing it in a spiritual sense. They know Jesus with their heads, but not with their hearts. They still have not yet grasped the meaning of his presence in that boat with them. They're too focused on the physical realm, too focused on the news, too focused on uh, everything going on around them physically that they're losing sight of, of the spirit of Jesus and, and, and what he's come to do. That word hard-hearted means to be dull or insensitive. And over time, as spirit-filled as we may be, if we don't cultivate the spirit in us with worship and the word and prayer, then our hearts can become insensitive to the things of the spirit. Then when we're in a service and the spirit of God's moving and people are responding and, and then we we find it easier to critique or criticize their form of worship without even entering into worship ourselves. We become insensitive. Paul says in Colossians 3, Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand. Set your minds on things above, not on these earthly things. You say, well, I don't want to be so heavenly minded I'm of no earthly good let me just tell you that me nor you nor any of us in this room or within the sound of my voice are anywhere near close enough to be so heavenly minded <laughs> we got a long way to go we got a long way to go let's, let's keep going let's keep moving toward it we tend to know a lot more things about the world than we do the things of the spirit if we aren't careful we allow our hearts to grow insensitive to the things of the spirit let me, let me close with this right here. This has been running through my spirit for a few days now. Here's some of our own stubborn tendencies, and, and I'm, I'm pointing at myself this morning as well. We forget the blessings very easily. We appreciate them in the moment, but we tend to, we tend to forget them. 
when the next need arises, when the next crisis hits. That's a, that's a spiritual stubbornness. What did the disciples do with the seven baskets? Apparently they grabbed one loaf and left the seven baskets. They had enough food to eat for a while, but they forgot the blessings. They left them on the shore. We forget the blessings. Something I began practicing a while back is that every evening before I go to bed, I, I thank the Lord for that day in whatever blessings I saw. And, and maybe I don't see like manna fall from heaven that day, but I, but I do know I ate. And so I say, thank you for your provision. I do know my family have all made it back to their respective places safe. And I say, thank you for your protection over my family today. And then when I can identify some of those other blessings, then I say, thank you for that, Lord. Trying to, trying to break through any hardness of my heart and fallow ground in my own heart. We take for granted the ways Jesus has shown up. We take for granted sometimes how Jesus has really shown up for us. We fail to worship him. We fail to give him the thanks and the praise. We fail to testify about what Jesus has done. Maybe we fail to even realize and take for granted that it truly was a miracle. Because we thought it would look this way and yet he did this. And I didn't even see it as his miracle. Because I was too focused over here. We take the things of Jesus for granted. Third one is we tend to finalize things that Jesus does. There is this... Uh, there is this underlying message, teaching, ideology in, in Christianity, and it's been here not long after the day of Pentecost, that, well, let me say this, not long after the first century, after the, after the apostles died. There is this idea that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the activity of the Holy Spirit is no longer necessary in the church. That with the first apostles, they had this anointing. And when we get to Mark 16, Jesus tells them that everyone who believes, but, but remember there, he's, he's not talking just to those, those disciples. Because he says, everyone who believes on your message. I think there's some of you this morning in the house that have believed on the message of the disciples, the apostles. It's called the Gospels. And you've believed on Jesus. He says, and those who believe, these signs and these wonders will follow them. Nowhere does he say, in fact, you take that and you compare it to Matthew chapter 28... Where is Matthew's understanding of what Jesus said? And Jesus says, I will be with you, where? To the end of the first century. And then, it's it. No, he says, I will be with you, what? Till the end of time, always. And so there's this prevailing thought, and, I, and I'm reading it even more. Man, I was so, so disappointed. I Leisha and I had this privilege to go to a, a meeting on Friday that our, our Assemblies of God in North Texas District was hosting a, uh, what was called School of the Spirit. And it was fascinating. Great lineup of speakers and just worship and getting in the presence of God. And 
But before I, but that morning when I was reading Facebook, I saw a post from a young man that uh, used to be in our youth group years ago when we were youth pastors at, a, at another church. And he was just spouting off this big, he reposted this big, huge, long article that was critical of a very uh, well-known and, and very, uh, well, very well-known charismatic pastor, teacher. And, and I'm seeing it more and more. Now, I do know there's in the news, there are ministers who are fallen. Doesn't change the theology. It, it, it has to deal with character. But this person is not even one that's fallen. But this article was just, and, and what it was, I can, I can tell you this, it was written from a person who does not have a charismatic Pentecostal basis of doctrine. In other words, they believe it all ended with the first century and therefore this guy who is so prominent in the charismatic church and movement and writing all these books and doing all these schools of prophecy and all of this and that is totally missing. And man, my heart just hurt because I realized that's a prevailing, that's a prevailing attitude that is meant to, to hold back what the spirit activity is for his church today. So we say, we tend to become stubborn in our hearts and say, well, Jesus can't do it that way. Jesus doesn't do it that way anymore. I liked, uh, I've actually had a mentor to share with me and another group of ministers a few years back that the gifts of the spirit, tongues, interpretation, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, should be practiced in the prayer room. And that the only ones permitted in the house to operate in that gift have to have been through the prayer room and have to have, have been a, appointed and approved. And that didn't gel with me to begin with, but I loved what at this, at this meeting on, on Friday, what Cindy Jacobs said. She said, the Holy Spirit has a right to speak in his church. Who am I to tell him he can't speak in his church? And then lastly, we formalize the things of Jesus. We want things pretty tidy. Now let me tell you something. The fact that the Holy Spirit gets to speak in His church makes it very challenging to be a pastor of a Pentecostal charismatic church. Because with that comes having to steward that. And if somebody does something that's totally out of line, we've got to deal with it. We've got to deal with it as a shepherd. It'd be easier to belong to a non-charismatic Pentecostal denomination because you just do it and you leave, right? But we tend to formalize things. We tend to, to formalize. We, we, we don't want to be fanatics. Again, as I said earlier, I don't think any of us are on the border of that. <laughs> I think we may be very far from the edge of that cliff. In other words, we respond to Jesus and we love him with all of our heart and we go after him with all of our heart. And if that means at any point I'm in the middle of worship and I need to go to the altar and just find a place to pray, forget what everybody might think. And can I just tell you, they probably don't think about you as much at this altar as you think they think you think. They got their own stuff going on up here and in here. 
And it just means that you just respond. That's why we're, gonna, that's why we're just going to take some time and worship at the close of this service. We're going to say, Holy Spirit, whatever you want to do. Now, I know you bunch of you just got nervous. Can I just tell you, nobody would be more nervous than me? Because you don't have to get up to a microphone and say, okay, I don't know about that. We're just, we're just going to, we're just not going to be stubborn. How about that? By putting Jesus in a box or having to formalize everything. Our relationship to Jesus is at its fullest when I give myself fully to Jesus.